A minister, a Boy Scout, and a computer expert were the only passengers on a small plane. Uh, the pilot came back mid-flight to, from the, into the cabin and said that the plane was going down. Uh, the problem was that they had three parachutes and there were four people. The pilot added, well, I, um, I should have one of the parachutes because I have a wife and three young children at home. And so he grabbed a parachute and he jumped out. The computer whiz said, well, I should have one of the parachutes because I'm the smartest man in the world and everybody needs me. And so he grabbed a parachute jumped out. Um, the minister turned to the Boy Scout and with a sad smile, he said, you're young. I've lived a full, rich life, and so you take the remaining parachute, and I will go down with the plane. The Boy Scout said, relax, Reverend. The smartest man in the world just picked up my knapsack and jumped out. (laughs) This all proves out the scripture, pride comes before the fall. Pride, it it can have dire consequences. We've been studying the book of Esther together these last few weeks, and uh, and today we're going to see in the book of Esther uh, two main characters in the story who are filled with pride, and it leads them to actions that undermine their futures and threaten the survival of an entire race of people. Here's how I want to deal with the subject today. We're we're going to walk through the story recorded in the book of Esther, uh, focusing in on the pride that we see in these two men and the consequences that come from their pride. And then then we're going to step out of the text. And we're going to talk a little bit about this, uh, this thing called pride in our own experience today. The story of the book of Esther opens with the Persian king Ahasuerus who is throwing a feast that lasts for six months. Uh, It's attended by leaders all over the empire. Uh, He is trying to garner support and loyalty uh, because of a planned military excursion against Greece. And so to garner their allegiance, he has them come into the capital city where he's showing off all of his riches and all of his glory. His heart swells with pride over all that he has and all that he is. And at the conclusion of the six-month period, he throws a seven-day bash for all that lived in the city of Susa, the capital, all that might be visiting. And so everybody in the city is invited to come and to eat and to drink on his tab. Well, he's pretty well wasted. He's drunk by the end of the feast. And and he decides to put one final thing on display for all to see. And so he summons his queen, Queen Vashti, to come and to be shown off as a piece of property. But she refuses to come, maybe the only honorable person really in the whole book in one sense. The king's pride is wounded, and so he brings all of his counselors together to tell him what he's to do to massage his ego. So let's go to the text. If you have your Bible or your electronic device, you want to go to Esther chapter 1, or if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 519. Esther chapter 1. And let's start by looking at verse 13. 
The king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, and then drop down to verse 16, uh, Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only, is the, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of Ahasuerus. It's amazing where the mind goes. And for the queen's behavior will be, will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. <laughs> if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. Let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, to every people in his own language, that every man may be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. When chapter 2 opens, it's three years later. Ahasuerus has returned from his disastrous defeat in the conquest against Greece. And so we read in chapter 2, verse 1, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Do you see a little bit of remorse in that? And yet the remorse is having to fight with his pride. And certainly he could have chosen to reverse himself and bring Vashti back into the palace but once again, he'll listen to the advisors who are coming with their own agendas. Verse 2, then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And yet let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. And this is where we see God's providence as we're at work as we discovered last week. God favors this young woman by the name of Esther. And she pleases the king, and he makes her his queen. Chapter 3, as we saw last week, introduces us to a man called Haman. He's promoted and he's placed high in the kingdom, second only to the king himself. Why? We're not told. But we pick up the story in chapter 3, verse 2. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, did not bow down or pay homage. Now remember, Mordecai is Esther's uncle-slash-adoptive father after her parents had died. He's a Jew. He's obviously involved in things of the king's business because of where he works. We'll see that in a moment. But all the king's servants bowed down, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. 
And then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they'd made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Haman is a man who is filled with pride. According to Plutarch, the first century Greek biographer, the Persians regarded their king as the very image of God. And therefore, high honor must have been accorded to Haman that everybody would be instructed there to bow down before him. But what eats his lunch is the fact that this one man, Mordecai, would not bow down before him. Various opinions have been offered as to why that was the case. Some suggest that it's because he as a Jew did not want to bow down to a Gentile. Others have suggested that it might be sour grapes because he didn't get a reward for having thwarted an assassination plot five years earlier. Uh, There's an insert in the Greek translation of the Hebrew text a translation that was made in the second century B.C. called the Septuagint. And in there, there are some apocryphal things that have been added, but this is one of those things which is interesting. Mordecai, in there, appeals to God in this manner. Thou knowest, Lord, that it was neither in contempt nor pride, nor for any desire of glory, that I did not bow down to proud Haman. For I could have been content with goodwill for the salvation of Israel to kiss the soles of his feet." But I did this that I might not prefer the glory of man above the glory of God. Neither will I worship any but thee. Now whether that's really true or not, it certainly probably gives us an insight maybe into how others viewed Mordecai and his commitment. But Haman's wounded pride leads to his plot to rid the king not only of Mordecai, but also of an entire race of people, all the Jews throughout the kingdom. And to get Ahasuerus to sign on to the plan, he appeals to the king's pride. Look in chapter 3 and verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. King, you don't want anybody in your kingdom who doesn't follow your command. You don't want anything that's different. You want to be sure that you get what you want. Pride not only corrupts one's morals, it clouds one's mind. It seems beyond the pale that the king goes along with such a destructive plan, but he does. And the king has the command written out and sent in letters all across the kingdom. I'm in chapter 3, still look down at verse 13. 
letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. We know from the story that Mordecai learns of the plot, and he informs Esther, and he implores her to then plead for the king on behalf of her people. And she prepares her entrance unsolicited before the king, which if the king was not favored to grant such an audience, she would be put to death. The plan in her mind comes together. And when she's granted an audience with Ahasuerus, she invites him and Haman to a feast that she's prepared for them. Well, you can imagine how Haman feels about this. He is just filled with pride. He is beside himself. And so he goes home and look what he tells his wife and his friends. We're jumping to chapter 5, verse 11. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, seventy-five feet. And in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it and then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman and he had the gallows made. And then we come to this reversal of outcomes as we considered in our first session together. Peripety, remember? A sudden turn of events that reverses the expected outcome of a story. And it all happens because the king cannot sleep one night. And so he summons his staff to come and take out the book of the Chronicles of the King and to read from it. And reading it, they discover that this man Mordecai thwarted this assassination plot. Let's pick up the text again in chapter 6 and verse 3. The king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he'd prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is here, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Oh, you can just imagine what's going through his mind. And he says to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, hmm, let me see. Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is sat. Uh, let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man, moi, whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And then the king said to Haman, Hurry, 
take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes, the horse, he dressed Mordecai, led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Don't you wish you'd been a fly on the saddle? <laughs> then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. And then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Oh, how great a fall Haman is destined for. He thinks he's on top of the world. He's soon to discover the opposite. Mother whale said to her baby whale, when you get to the surface and start to blow, that's when you get harpooned. That's exactly what's happening to Haman. At the third banquet that she throws for the king and Haman, she speaks to the king about the edict. Uh, by the way, the king is the one who issued the edict, but it was convenient to forget that. Uh, Haman was the one who came up with the idea. But the text says that the king left the room in a rage. And when he did, Haman fell onto the couch where Esther was seated and pleaded for his life. The king walks back in. He thinks that Haman is assaulting his wife. And it just goes from bad to worse. And Ahasuerus commands that Haman be hung on the very gallows that he had constructed to hang Mordecai upon. I think it's interesting, too, that the, the king's anger and subsequent edict that he gives to Jews authorizing self-defense doesn't seem to be out of regret of his earlier collusion with Haman, nor out of sympathy for the Jews, but it's his pride being challenged again by what Haman is doing or he thinks he's doing. There's no change indicated. There's no, there's no sorrow for his actions in there. And we know from history that Ahasuerus will face his own downfall just a few years later when he's assassinated in his bed by the head of his bodyguard. The perspective of Proverbs 16 seems to fit with both Haman and Ahasuerus. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. One of the interesting things, and before we step out of the text now and talk about pride today, uh, is, to, is to see the contrast that's in the text between Haman and Mordecai. When Mordecai hears about this edict uh, that calls for the elimination of the Jews, he doesn't charge into the palace demanding a renunciation or a reversal of the plan. He puts on sackcloth and ashes which in that culture was a symbol of sorrow and mourning and despair. Uh, it's this act of humility that comes to Esther's attention and uh, causes her to inquire about why. There's another telling thing about Mordecai. Uh, after he's paraded through the streets of Susa, where does he go? What does he do? The text says that he goes back to the king's gate. This is the place where the king's business was, was handled. He didn't go out and strut his stuff. He wasn't throwing this back into Haman's face. He went back to his life to do what he was to do. What, what a different thing that's there. 
The story will end with, with Mordecai's promotion to the place that was vacated by Haman. He'll become the most powerful person in all the kingdom behind the king. But it wasn't something that Mordecai sought after. It came to him. What an example of what we read in Psalm 75. For not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Well, for a few minutes, let's step out of the text. Let's just talk about this deadly sin. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes in his classic work, Mere Christianity, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians even imagine that they are guilty themselves. He was talking about pride, uh, the great enemy within. Before we talk about how to combat pride, let's, let's just try to define it and describe it. You know, what is it? Uh, well, it may involve one or more of these things, an attitude of self-justification before God, you know, where we just believe we're good enough to make it to heaven, we're good enough to make it in. Or the other way is to think about it, isn't God lucky that he has me? Uh, it might and probably does involve an overinflated view of oneself. A.W. Tozier, one of my favorite authors, writes, it's one of the supreme tragedies in religion that so many of us think so highly of ourselves when the evidence lies all on the other side. And our self-admiration effectively blocks out any possible effort to discover a remedy for our condition. It certainly involves an over-infatuation with self an inordinate fixation on oneself, one's abilities, one's accomplishments, one's successes and strengths, etc. So how is it manifested? What does it look like? How might we describe its appearance or, or its effects? So I, I just sat down and I just made a list. Let me give you my list. Uh, it might be an unwillingness to forgive. Sometimes pride gets in the way of us saying to somebody who's offended us, I, I forgive you. Uh, it might be forgiving yourself. There might be a problem because of pride. It might be an unwillingness to receive God's grace, a, a rejection of the grace often accompanied by feelings of unworthiness. Remember the prodigal son who came home and told his father that he wasn't worthy to be considered a son anymore, treat him as a slave, and instead the father embraces him and orders that the fatted calf be slaughtered and prepared for a feast, the, the ring put on his finger, the robe put on his back, you know, there was a very important thing that the prodigal son had to be willing to do, and that's to receive the grace of his father. And so, too, pride sometimes gets in our way of receiving the gracious things from our father. Sometimes it's blind ambition that shows up, cutthroat competition. Our pride just drives us on. Uh, maybe self-justification. C.S. Lewis writes, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we're good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we're being acted upon not by God, but the devil. But we seek to justify ourselves. I wonder sometimes if even false modesty comes in. You know, sometimes we just fake humility. Because we know that's what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to be humble. So in our pride, we're humble. Or something I call double-entry bookkeeping. Uh, Ray Stedman writes, When a form of pride appears in others, we have one name for it, but when the same thing appears in us, we have a nicer name for it. <laughs> others always have prejudices. We have convictions. 
Others are conceited. We have self-respect. Others garishly keep up with the Joneses. We simply try to get ahead. Others blow up and lose their tempers. We are seized with righteous indignation. Kind of hits, hits home, doesn't it? Um, the constant criticism of others. You know, we put down others because what it subtly does is it put ourselves up. And we feel better about ourselves. We also see arrogance comes in. I wonder even with workaholism, if there isn't sometimes some pride that's behind that driving people to the workplace. Self-righteousness. You know, emphasizing keeping outward standards rather than realizing what goes on inside is actually more important to God. And of course, oversensitivity. Maybe that one comes in. Uh, Ray Steadman tells of the comment made to him by a wise Christian woman. She said, I've learned that sensitivity is nothing but selfishness. And maybe, so maybe when you feel yourself being very touchy, look inside, is it really pride sensing an attack on oneself to which we vigorously react? So we, we know, at least from Scripture, that pride is bad. You know, it's wrong. We, we shouldn't feel pride. So how do we, how do we combat it? There are probably two things that we're going to see in Scripture that really direct us that way. Here's a couple of passages, though. First from 1 Peter 5. Peter writes, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's go to the book of James, if you have your Bible there. Page 1291, the Seatback Bible. Look what James writes about pride. James chapter 4. I'm going to start reading at verse 5. Chapter 4, verse 5. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So let me suggest this. The first thing is to humble ourselves. What does that mean? It's actually, in the, in the text of the New Testament, it's, it's a term that comes from the military. It means to properly order oneself, properly rank yourself. So as to place ourselves in the right place. So a couple of things necessary, I think, to produce such a response in relation to God. First of all, it's an accurate knowledge of God, including a holy fear. Psalm 36 says, Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. A fear, a proper fear, a proper ordering. And then I think it's an honest, critical evaluation of ourselves. That's the flip side. In Isaiah 51, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. It's remembering that God is God and you are not. The proper ordering, the proper ranking of ourselves. Now, there's a balance here. I mean, we are truly sinners to the core, to the very core of our being. But you were worth dying for. We need to remember that. So we keep these two things in tension together. How bad we are in and of ourselves, but how great grace is. And we kind of hold those together.
So we humble ourselves. The second thing is to submit ourselves. I think that probably includes a few things. It means to accept whatever God allows into our lives to teach us his will, to accomplish his purpose, to achieve his end, to create dependency upon him. This can really be difficult, can't it? There's a lot of mystery as to why things happen to us. There are times we cannot see God's hand. We cannot see his purpose. We cannot understand what he's doing in the circumstances of our life. But this is exactly when we have to trust that God knows what he's doing and what he will do to bring about his own purpose, which will be our ultimate good and his glory. And then we're to draw near to God. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He calls for us to be seekers of God. That's especially important. We're in the midst of difficult things. And then obey. Submission to God will always result in obedience to God. The Old Testament prophet Micah brings God's perspective to bear when he writes, He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Humbly there in the Hebrew text means circumspectly. It's looking around. It's implying an accurate picture. That's the way we're to walk. I'll close with what Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 12. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Not less, but just not more highly than he ought to think. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God assigned. May we be more like Mordecai, not like Haman, not like King Ahasuerus. It's always a matter of choice in our lives. But would you pray with me? God, we know that you're a God who does not share his glory with anyone else. You alone are worthy of glory and ought to receive such glory. And God, there is something within us, so deep within us from the fall of Adam and Eve into sin that we just want to justify ourselves, that drives us to promote ourselves. Give us the wisdom that Paul writes about, that we not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But at the same time, God, protect us from a false humility, from just envisioning ourselves as a groveling worm who's worthy to be stomped upon. Jesus died for us. We are worth that much to you. But it is your worth, it's your value, and it's your grace that you bring to bear in our lives. So we're so grateful for what you do in us and for us. In Christ's name I pray, amen.